This is a really cool series we've been doing, and I think it's one that applies to all of us. It's called After. It is a series of conversations about the afterlife, heaven and hell, and whatever it is that's waiting for us on the other side. So far, we've talked about near-death experiences. We've talked about heaven and what heaven will be like. I spent last week introducing the concept of hell. Today, I'm going to kind of continue that conversation, getting more specific about things like God's judgment and wrath and sin and all these happy subjects, but things that we have to learn about so that we know what we're talking about. And then next Sunday, we will round out this series on a high note by talking about angels. But first, we have uh, some work to do around hell, because I know a lot of people just kind of tune Christians out when the subject comes up. A lot of people just don't buy what Christians are selling when it comes to the negative side of the afterlife. We're going to get into that some today. So on Wednesday night, I was uh, hosting a live Q&A about hell on Facebook Live. And as I'm in the middle of sort of the heart of my teaching I raised my arms up to show the screen, to show something to the camera so y'all could read the scripture I was looking at, and my elbow knocked over a can of something that spilled all over my Bible. And I'm just here to confess to you that what that spilled all over my Bible was beer. Now, it was local beer. It was beer brewed by, um, by a member of the story, actually. Um, and uh, he owns Spindle Tap Brewery. It's delicious beer, but it was beer that was all over my favorite Bible. (laughs) And I don't know what happened in this moment. I like to think I'm a pretty honest guy, but I made an executive decision in this moment, probably driven by my own shame about drinking a beer while teaching the Bible as a pastor to like 40 people who were watching live online. But I made an executive decision to tell a little white lie. I'm going to share this short clip with you from that Facebook Live Q&A, and you tell me if you can spot the little white lie that I told. I'm going to show you all this, okay? Luke 12, 23, for example. I just spilled a Coke all over my Bible. Awesome. Does that mean you're going to hell? I hope not. Okay, Luke, 20, Luke 12, 2 to 3. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roots. Okay, so (laughs) the irony didn't even occur to me in the moment, just how perfect this all was. The scripture that I read after telling this lie, I spilled Coke on my Bible when I knew it was beer. I just didn't want you to know it was beer. All these layers of sin taking place in real time as I'm teaching people who look up to me as some kind of an authority figure. So first, there's just the sin of like drinking beer on the job. I don't know if that's really a sin, but it felt sinful, right? That's why I lied. The second part of it was, you know, spilling beer on a Bible, which I don't know, for some people might be a sin. But then there was the real problem of lying about spilling beer (laughs) on a Bible. And then, of course, uh, I was lying to people about, uh, you know, I was lying to people while I was telling people why Jesus can't tolerate their lies. It was just so much going on in this moment. I was caught red-handed. I hope you don't lose all respect for me, but that was my Wednesday night. It was just too perfect. As I was preparing this message on hell, especially, it was a, a good reminder to me. 
Because if I'm real honest, uh, the reminder for me was one of the reasons why so few people buy what Christians are selling in terms of hell especially is because they've heard one too many guys like me sitting in positions of authority saying one thing and doing another. And so that presents a, a real conflict, uh, a divide in people's minds, and a lot of people just walk away from this, uh, this thing we call church. You know, I, I talked about in the last couple of weeks that uh, this is still a majority Christian nation by far, and, and like more than three-fourths of all people still believe in God, still believe in heaven, but only half of all Americans still believe in hell or, or believe in, in hell at all, only half. And I think that's because uh, not of the logic behind hell, but I think it's because of Christians. And if you're one of those people that struggles with believing, I want you to know we don't believe that hell is real because of people like me telling us to. And if you believe in hell and it's because of something I've told you or you trust me enough to believe, like, don't believe it for that reason. I'm clearly not trustworthy <laughs> as evidenced by that clip. So the reason we believe this is not because mommy and daddy told us to. It's because Jesus spoke to this reality so often. He spoke of hell as a real place of eternal conscious torment. And so we either have to believe Jesus or not. And I think um, even though this is a majority nation, a Christian nation, and, uh, and half people don't believe in hell, I, I think there, there are real good reasons why they don't. And I think I, I want to validate those reasons in some ways. And I'll just share with you a few of the most common reasons that I've heard um, for not believing in the Christian idea of hell, okay? So these are three of the most common responses or retorts that I'll hear whenever I'm talking to non-believers about hell. And the first one is simply about the Bible. And this one will come from people who grew up Christian and left it, right? They know enough about the Bible to know, in their minds at least, that the Bible is ambiguous about hell. And they'll point to the first two-thirds of the Bible, the Old Testament, and they'll say there's just not a lot of clarity in the Old Testament about what hell even is. The Old Testament writers use words like Sheol and, uh, and Hades, and, and these words seem to mean different things than what Jesus meant. And, and while there's definitely a conversation to be had there, and I'm willing to entertain it, the issue obviously lies in the person of Jesus, right? So Jesus is either incorrectly, you know, trying to, correct the, the Old Testament um, prophets and Old Testament writers. Either he's incorrectly critiquing them and they knew more about hell than he did, or Jesus is correctly filling in the gaps in their understanding of hell. So obviously Christians, myself, I, I fall into that latter camp. Like I think Jesus is the lens through which we read the whole Bible. If anybody knows what the afterlife is like, it's probably Jesus. And so he's uh, filling the gaps uh, in and what's missing from the Old Testament understanding of hell. Now, the second misunderstanding, or I guess argument against hell, is something uh, that I call the love wins argument. So a few years ago, a very famous pastor named Rob Bell um, uh, wrote a book, a very popular book, but controversial book called Love Wins. And the argument here goes like this. As nice as it sounds, I think there's, I think there's more to be had here. So the argument says, if God is really love, if God is really good, and if God is really God, then eventually he'll have his way. He'll, his will will be done, right? So, so uh, the Bible does say that God's will is that none should perish, 
The Bible says that God's will is that all should be saved. And so if he's God, he'll get his way sometime in eternity. And people might deny him for a time. They might go to hell for a time, maybe a long time. But eventually God will wear them down so that everyone ends up in heaven. And whatever we think of hell is no more. Well, I think uh, this is, a, this is a, a feel-good argument for sure. And I think a lot of well-intentioned people say this, but I think it denies two very important principles. First is God's honoring of human free will, and second is just the power of sin and the power of pride. Listen, I, I want you to hear this part. Like the, the Christian understanding of hell isn't this dark prison where you're chained to a wall being beaten and violated by these awful demon forces. Like, no, that's not the Christian image of hell at all. The Christian image of hell is a place where every single person gets their way every day, and it's almost enough to satisfy them. Every single person gets their way every day, and it's not quite enough to satisfy them. And if you've ever been wrapped up in a pattern of sin, you know how that power works. The longer you're addicted to something, the longer you're attached to something that doesn't deserve your, your adoration, the way that you adore it, the way that you worship it, the harder it is to break that habit, the more hooked you get on that substance, whatever it is. And so this idea that somehow over time, a sinner's heart will grow softer toward God after spending a lifetime on this earth denying God or rejecting God or being angry at God, somehow in eternity that will all change. That seems unlikely. It's not where I, I would want to place my bet. Um, knowing people the way that I do and, and knowing myself, how sin works and how stubborn we can be. Listen, the Christian view of hell isn't that God ever stops calling out to or loving the people who are there. It's that once you're there, you don't want to hear his voice or you don't recognize it or you hate it for trying to stand in the way of your ongoing addiction to whatever sin that is in your life. The third argument that is very common about uh, or against the idea of hell is that if God is truly loved, then there can be no hell. The Bible, everybody knows, says God is love. God is love. If he is love, why would hell be on the table at all? Why can't he just be nice to people? This is the most common argument against hell. Okay, so it's important that we talk about it. Why can't God be nice like us? Why can't God be more inclusive like us? It would seem that if he's God, he should be morally superior to us. A God who allows people to go to hell forever is morally inferior to us. So is he even worthy of our worship? These are the conversations that I find people having or that I have with people. Is that God should be more inclusive than us. God should be less violent or less judgmental than us if he is truly God. Now, here's the issue, and this is very hard for us to see. Unless you've lived among deep need, deep poverty, if, unless you've been affected directly by some systemic injustice where you were helpless in the face of it, you will not see this argument. You will not see that the only people who ever would make this argument are those who've lived in the lap of luxury for so long that they can't even see the effects of their comfort anymore. They don't even see how they're drunk with privilege anymore. 
and how their privilege informs this idea that God should not be a God of judgment. If he was loved, then he would not judge. The only people who say a loving God would never let anyone burn in hell forever are those who their entire lives have known that they can call the police to get protection, that they can go to court to get justice, that their government won't be cutting their heads off today for getting out of line. The only people who speak in this way are people deep in privilege. But there are many places in the world where the authorities are the bad guys. Historically speaking, the majority of authority figures have been the bad guys. Historically speaking, the systems of justice in this world have been unjust. Uh, Historically speaking, governments have been unjust. They have not been good actors and looking out for the needs of their people. This is a very modern kind of privilege that we are awash in. And there is this Christian um, uh, author and theologian. He's actually a professor at Yale University. His name is Miroslav Volf. And he is, uh, he grew up in in Croatia, in war-torn Croatia. So he saw some things. And those things have informed his Christian faith in ways many of us can't directly relate to. But I, I want you to hear what he said in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. This is kind of a long quote. And so y'all just kind of dial in with me. I know it's weird on video only. Dial in, listen to what this scholar who grew up in war-torn Croatia is telling us about this idea of hell. He says, in a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. In a world where violence, in a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative either God's violence or human violence. Most people deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. And so violence thrives, secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. To the person who is inclined to dismiss hell, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Soon you would discover that it takes, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Wow. This quote, I've read it a thousand times. It blows my mind every time. And it's a reminder that only comfortable people say, if God is really loved, there can be no hell. But in the real world, where suffering and violence and injustice still reign. If hell did not exist, then God would not be love. God is love because he is just. He is just because he is love. His will isn't for any of us to go to hell, but it is a definite possibility for all of us to go there, to end up there. And I think that is why Jesus spoke so often and so urgently about the danger that we could all be in. And this life, 
this life that you're living right now on this earth, this time, in this body, with these people around you, this moment is your time of choosing. It is a moment in which we all get to choose to what and to whom we will be ultimately loyal. Where will our affections lie? Where will we worship? And, and, and how will we spend our time on this earth? Luke uh, 22 said, Jesus told his disciple Peter that Satan wants to sift his followers like wheat. That Satan has asked to sift Jesus' disciples like wheat, meaning he wants to single you out and burn you up. There is an enemy at work, right? We talk a lot about God being our friend and God's plan for your life and God's will for your life and all of that is true, but Jesus wanted you to know that God isn't the only supernatural being who has a plan and a will for your life. Jesus went to prepare a place for you. Well, so did Satan, so did the enemy. He's got a place for you as well. And I think a lot of times we we misunderstand how he works. We think that as long as we're not, you know, criminals that are, that are just these froth-mouthed serial killers, then we're not, you know, children of the devil. Like, we think that that's what Satan wants to do with us. Listen, that is an extreme example of what Satan's example, what, what his will could be for our lives. What Satan really wants to do with most of us, isn't to make us serial killers on death row. He just wants to plant a seed in our head that says we have a lot, but not enough. The seed that says it's, it's almost enough. That's how he works. I've seen it all the time. He wants you to check your bank statement tomorrow and go, it's good, but it's not enough. It's almost enough. He wants you to look in the mirror and think, attractive, but it's not enough. It's almost enough. Or he wants you to look at your church attendance record and think to yourself, it's almost enough. If I could be a little bit better, people would respect me a little bit more. I would have a little better place in heaven. He wants you to have almost enough. He doesn't want some dr drastic fall from grace for you. He wants the daily drip of almost enough to slowly erode the image of God that is within you. There is a YouTube channel that <laughs> I, I stumbled upon recently, and I, I really enjoy it. It's uh, pretty entertaining. It's, a, it's called Jolly, I think is the name of the channel, and it's these two teenage boys. One of the things that they do is from time to time, they'll, they'll invite their priest onto their podcast, and they will, just in real time, show their priest one of uh, their favorite music videos, like a very popular music video that's just come out that the priest has never seen before. And recently they showed him the music video of a song called All the Good Girls Go to Hell uh, by Billie Eilish. And uh, in this video, Billie plays the role of Lucifer, I think, and she's that fallen angel that, that falls from heaven to earth and becomes Satan and kind of plays that role. And there's a lot going on. There's a lot of biblical imagery, and the priest picks up on this biblical imagery. I want to show you this clip. It's, uh, it's not the music video. If I showed you the actual music video and his reaction to it, Mark Zuckerberg would take down our live feed forever. So I'm going to show you the immediate aftermath of that video and uh, the priest's response. He, he takes this opportunity to teach the boys something about 
the, the one the Bible calls the prince of this world. Wow. Wow. Classic Billy. Dark imagery. Dark imagery, yeah. It holds your attention, right? Yeah, it's interesting and engaging. Anyone that's familiar with kind of biblical narrative will recognize the imagery. I mean, enlighten us. What's going on? Well, you have the traditional understanding of the fall of Lucifer, the angel kicked out of heaven. Wait, so Lucifer was an angel? Lucifer, oh my goodness, Ollie. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is 101, Satan 101. Satan 101. So we understand that there are angels and demons. Lucifer started out as an angel, a kind of servant of light of God, cast out from heaven, fallen to earth. So Satan's somewhere around here. Satan is the, called the prince of this world. Yeah. Ah, so like he, Prince he, Harry. No, not like <laughs> Prince Harry. Oh. <laughs> Wonderful prince of our okay. nation. So yeah, the ruler, principalities and powers, kind of rulers of the spiritual and also influencers of the world. In influences. Yeah, we're, like, we're influencers. Ooh. Yeah, wow. Satan has a blue tick. <laughs> He's an influencer. Be wise to his trickery and tomfoolery. Be wise to his trickery and tomfoolery is like the most polite way ever <laughs> to say what Jesus was trying to say. He's trying to tell us to watch out, that we, we have some enemy that's coming after us that wants to know us and destroy us. Um, Jesus' disciple Peter, the one that he said that thing to earlier about Satan wanting to sift you as wheat, Peter later wrote uh, to uh, the churches. He wrote in First Peter, uh, his letter, he said, be careful. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's how they describe this enemy that's up against us. So they, they, they say we should think of him as a predator looking for our weaknesses, looking for a moment of opportunity to seize his prey. So this personal struggle it's like the oldest story in the Bible. It goes all the way back to Genesis, you know, with the snake and Eve and, and the next chapter with Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. So Cain gets mad because God doesn't like his offering as much as he likes Abel's offering. And God goes straight to Cain to try and fix this situation. And, and God says to Cain, why are you angry? Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must rule over it. And then in the next verse, Cain said to Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were there, Cain attacked and killed his brother. And then the Lord said to Cain, hey, where's Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? And this is the first kind of passive aggressive, finger pointing, blaming, it's your fault, not mine, if you can't find him, reaction to being called out on our sin sin. Be sober and alert for our enemy is like a predator outside the door looking for someone to devour. Sin is crouching, desiring to have you. Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat. The Bible, especially Jesus, just couldn't be clearer. And yet we live so nonchalantly in our comfort sometimes. I wonder what it's going to take for us to get it, and what it's gonna take for me to get it, that the way I live my life and how I spend my time and the things I care about, the energy that I put into things, it all matters. There's something at stake all the time. And, and, and this enemy doesn't need me to become a really bad person. He just wants me to become a really distracted one who always sees 
almost enough of what he wants. Sometimes I think my life of comfort has lulled my soul to sleep, and that's exactly when the predator can pounce. The clearest and most profound story about heaven and hell in all the Bible, I think, is found in Luke 16. And some of you have heard me talk about this on the Q&As and things like that. I could not end this part of the series without talking about this story Jesus tells. It is too good. It's too good. And every time I read it, there's another layer underneath that I haven't seen before. And in this story, Jesus tells, it features two characters, really. One is a rich man who has lived in the lap of luxury, a lap of comfort his whole life. And the other is a man named Lazarus, who was so destitute and poor that the dogs licked his sores. And he sat outside the rich man's house for many years before they both died around the same time. After they died, Lazarus went to heaven and the rich man went to hell. And this is where we'll pick the story up. Luke 16, verses 23 to 25. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He said, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to fetch some water, for I am in agony in this fire. I'll stop here for a sec. I want you to notice how this rich man, even though he's in hell and Lazarus is in heaven, he still thinks that poor man is his water boy. He still thinks that the world revolves around him, even though he's in hell. Even though he's in hell and Lazarus is in heaven, Lazarus should bring me some water. Hey, Abraham, send that boy down here with some water. I'm thirsty. Make it sparkling if you have it. If not, an Evian will do whatever. Like, bring me some water. And it's like he can't even see it. It's like it's completely lost on him. And Abraham tries to explain to him that that's not how life works anymore. You'll notice that the rich man didn't even ask to be let out of hell. He He didn't even asked for that. He showed no signs of repentance and no signs of remorse for whatever it was that landed him in hell. All he said was, send that boy down here to come and serve me. And then Abraham tells him profoundly, really, remember, you got what you wanted in life, and now you're getting what you want in death. But this man, Lazarus, got nothing that he wanted in life, and now he has everything and more in death. Wow, this is profound. The, uh, the next part of the story uh, is, is sort of the, the end of the story, and I'll, I'll read that to you now. This is uh, from Luke 16. He, said, he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them and they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Even if. Okay. So you'll notice in this part of the passage, even if, if you've never personally experienced addiction, but you know somebody who has, or if you've ever been wrapped up in any kind of sin, you know this is how it works. He 
effectively blames God for his ending up in hell. If you look closely at what I just read, why did he end up in hell? Well, he didn't have the information that was necessary to make a good decision. And he wants to make sure his brothers are giving, given more information than he had in order to make a better call. The level of self-righteousness is beyond me, but I don't, I don't know that it's that far beyond me. This is how we could all end up in the same place. You might have noticed what I think is the most profound part of the story, that this rich man who is in hell is just that, a rich man in hell with no name. His entire identity in this life was wrapped around this thing he worshiped, being rich, having more, being the center of his own universe, being served by the likes of Lazarus. And then this poor man who the dogs licked goes to heaven with a name, Lazarus. Lazarus means literally the one God helped. And in this one simple story, Jesus encapsulates entirely the choices that are before you in this life that you're living right now. You can spend this life bending the knee to things or people that are not worthy of worship. You can spend your life building your identity around something that is not worth your identity, something that does not deserve that kind of loyalty and end up in hell with no name. Just a rich guy. Just a womanizer. Just the pretty girl. Just super mom. You can end up with no name in hell like this guy did or... You can spend your life now worshiping the only one who belongs on the throne of your heart, building your identity in him and finding your truest identity in his image in which you were created. You can be the rich guy in hell with no name or you can be Lazarus, the one whom God helped. And that's not a religious systematic thing you have to figure out. That's as simple as just letting God help you. For real. Letting God forgive you. Letting God save you from yourself. Letting God humble you. Letting God convict you. Letting God sanctify you. Letting God have you. That's your only reason for living, that's your only purpose for existence is to belong entirely to God, to know him and be known by him. And you let him help you. You end up in heaven with a name. Fully known. Fully loved. And it's not about figuring out how to live without sin. If I spill a beer onto my Bible every week for the rest of my life, I can still be in heaven with a name because Jesus 
and his righteousness is now me and mine. Praise God. So let him help you and forgive you and save you. You can just pray this prayer with me. It's a simple prayer of surrender, all right? So even if you've been a Christian before and you've fallen away, or if you've never even considered it, just pray this little prayer with me and let it be the first step on this next part of your journey. Let's pray. God, I've tried and tried to get enough of whatever it is I want. And I always end up with almost enough. It's never quite satisfying. And the more I get of it, the more I want. And so, God, I, I want off of that hamster wheel. I want to stop playing that game because it's taking all of me. It's robbing me of my true identity. All I want right now, Father, is to be your son, your daughter, fully known and loved by you, helped and forgiven, saved by you. What I want is eternity with you in heaven. So Lord, I surrender, I surrender. My white flag is waving, I surrender. And I ask you to take over my heart, my home, my family, take over my ambitions, take over my conversations, take over my thoughts. I fully surrender to you, the one who made me in your image. I thank you for your son, Jesus, through whom all of this is possible. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.